This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, placing and taking responsibility for the health of the individual and the planet. From molecular biology to global ecology, from political socioeconomics to psychology and spirituality. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, empowering host resistance. We can be found on the web at neijingnow.org, N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W dot O-R-G. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chandar, and I welcome you to another opportunity for exploring Neijing Now. I'm speaking with Suzanne Schick at San Francisco General Hospital, and her titles are... I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and I study the health effects of air pollution. And we're here to talk about second and third hand cannabis smoke. Tell me what your research is about. I'm one of the first people who's going out to public places where people are using marijuana or cannabis and studying the air pollution that is associated with this use. So we are going to concerts and public events, we're going to cannabis festivals, and we're going to the dispensaries in San Francisco and Oakland. And on-site use, your customers can purchase a product and then right there in the store actually use it. Now some dispensaries permit you to smoke it, whether you're using a joint or a blunt or a pipe or a water pipe, and some dispensaries only permit you to vaporize it or to dab it. Now vaporizing is when you grind up dried marijuana flowers and heat them and then inhale the aerosol that comes off. And this is a fairly efficient method for getting the THC out of flowers without getting quite as many other polluting chemicals as you get with outright combustion. However, it is not something that I, as somebody who studies the health effects of air pollution, can recommend as safe. It can reduce your exposure to carcinogens, but carcinogens are not your only problem when you're inhaling smoke and aerosols. Okay, wow, that was a lot of information all at once. <laughs> first of all, I think it's pretty exciting that you're one of the first researchers. Marijuana has some real medical utility. It's helpful for reducing pain. It's also antispasmodic. But inhaling smoke is never a good thing for your health. No matter what the source is, whether it's wood or paper or coal. Diesel exhaust, tobacco smoke, cigarette smoke, marijuana smoke. So research has shown carefully examining the chemistry of marijuana and tobacco smoke where the marijuana cigarette and the tobacco cigarette were smoked in the same way. The chemical content of the smoke, both the part that's inhaled by the active user and the part that goes out into the atmosphere is the side stream smoke, are very similar. Really, that's so interesting because I think most people think that marijuana smoke is much less of a problem. It's just as toxic, gram per gram, as tobacco smoke. See, this is so interesting. You know, I just recently moved back to California. You can smell it everywhere. It so, is illegal to smoke cannabis publicly. It may be that some of what I'm smelling is also just wafting out of homes. It's possible. Certainly I see it wafting out of cars. I don't like seeing people exposing anybody to secondhand smoke of any kind, especially in dispensaries with on-site consumption. In some places, 
the pollution exposures can be far worse than we observed in our community when the wildfire smoke was blowing over us. Right. And what you're saying is that in these dispensaries, the pollution levels are worse? Higher over the entire working day. So that's like 8 or 12 hours of exposure. Yeah, for the people who are working there. And then if you're walking into a dispensary and you have existing heart disease, vascular disease, atherosclerosis, asthma, COPD, then you're going from outside air where the particle concentration is normally below 12 micrograms per cubic meter into a place where the particle concentration is well above 100 micrograms, even in spaces that are not having heavy activity and where people aren't smoking, where they're just vaporizing and dabbing. If it's a place that is allowing smoking, your level of exposure can be over a thousand micrograms per cubic meter. Wow, that's worse than Delhi or Mexico City. You know, we're getting into spaces where it's just like in the bad old days where people were smoking in bars and restaurants where you can see a pall of smoke up at the ceiling. It's also really bad even in places where you don't see it as a hanging pall. When we get our sensors in there, we're still seeing levels of pollution highly hazardous in dispensaries that are only permitting vaporizing and dabbing. Oh, even just with vaporizing and dabbing, that's what you're saying? Yes. When we go into dispensaries where they're actually permitting combustion, we're seeing air quality indexes that are above what we quantify for air pollution outdoors. It's beyond the meter, what the meter yes. can read. If you're actively smoking in a room with standard indoor ventilation, you're off the chart. We didn't have that happen except immediately adjacent to the wildfires. People are working day in and day out in places where the particle concentrations are quite high. One of the places where we've done a series of experiments and seen routinely concentrations of over a thousand micrograms per cubic meter, installed a brand new ventilation system, a big series of vents pulling air out and moving air in and filtering it. And instead of being 1,000 micrograms per cubic meter last time we were there, they were 750, which is still above the charts. Yeah, it's way above the charts. And so what you're saying is that fancy ventilation system, it's not sufficient to clean the air in these dispensaries. Yes, I think that people are really having exposures to air pollution in these places that are bad for their health, the workers and also the customers. It's mm -hmm. taking a leap back to the bad old days when we permitted cigarette smoking mm -hmm. in public buildings, and it's a really proven bad idea for public health. Mm, okay. With cigarettes, it's a really standardized object. You buy a box of 20, each has somewhere between three quarters and one gram of tobacco in it, and people use cannabis very differently. Some people need very little cannabis to get where they want to go, and so they only smoke a puff or two. Other people can smoke massive amounts because they have high tolerance and create correspondingly large amounts of air pollution. You mentioned several different methods of use. Can you repeat them and maybe give a little definition of each? I'd be really happy to. The older, more customary ways of using cannabis are to burn it. So that's a joint rolled up in you know light-colored rolling paper. That can be a blunt. What's the difference between a joint and a blunt? A blunt, you buy yourself a small cigar and you slit the side and you remove the tobacco and then you can either replace it entirely with ground up marijuana or you can mix marijuana in with the original tobacco from the inside of the blunt and put that back in the rolling paper and smoke that. 
And then people can also smoke it out of small handheld pipes, out of water pipes or bongs. And then we look at vaporizing, where you're basically using some form of electrically heated surface to put finely ground cannabis on and heat it to, you know, near but below burning. You still get a lot of chemistry at that elevated temperature. It's not completely harm-free. There's, we don't have good data because we can't study them in a legitimate laboratory because you know, the only way you can do research where you touch marijuana is to get your marijuana from the DEA and go through a very careful permitting and permission process. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't study it? Cannabis is still a Schedule One drug as far as the federal government of the United States is concerned which means that any research institution that relies on funding from the federal government can't risk breaking the law. I would lose the ability to do research. I would probably get fired. There would be fines for the university. There would be a very big, big problem. So what I'm doing is just going out and collecting samples of ambient air and observing what people are doing. And it's a very useful, important, first pass experiment. Yes, it is very useful, but I, I'm actually surprised that you can't get approval. <laughs> you just can't. And it's a big problem because, yeah. say, so there's a very complex protocol and they have to come inspect your laboratory. You have to store it in a locked freezer. It has to be super, super duper secure and you have to account for every crumb of it. Well, there can be absolutely no possibility of diversion. And the cannabis is grown in just a couple of fields in the United States, highly secured. It's no longer really representative of market cannabis. Wait, so you mean the federally approved marijuana is only grown in certain locations? What about the medical marijuana? Where is that coming from? Well, that was a local workaround to provide people who wanted the medical benefits of cannabis with cannabis. It does not come from drug companies. It is not federally approved. The cannabis industry developed relationships between medical cannabis dispensaries and local growers. The cannabis that the DEA distributes comes with THC percentages. It's 4.75 maybe, and the latest they've gotten a real wild and whopping 13.75% THC. But the cannabis that's being sold in dispensaries, what people seem to be selling and buying is more around 18 to 20, and even as high as 28 and 30% THC. But we haven't even talked about concentrates yet or dabbing. Okay, let's get to it. You know, when you grow your nice marijuana plants, everybody likes the flower buds. That's the place where the most THC is. And everybody likes those flower buds to be neatly trimmed and aesthetically designed. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. that's actually a job. You've heard of people whose work is to do the trimming. I well, have. that's real work because they grow kind of shaggy. Uh -huh. And you dry them and then you, you manicure them and you tidy them up and make ready them for sale. And then there's all of this dropped material that you've trimmed. And it still has plenty of THC in it. And that and other plant parts that still have a fair amount of THC gets sold for extraction. So you can chemically extract the THC and maybe cannabinoids. It's more than just THC. There's also CBD and a bunch of others and the terpenes and the flavoring compounds and sell that. There's many ways of extracting. The most common is solvent. Like organic solvent? Yeah. The most common original one was butane. Then you have to flash off the solvent. You flash it off with heat. Typically. You know, I mean, you can be doing this in a Pyrex dish in your backyard mm -hmm. and lighting your eyebrows on fire. Or you can be in a big, expensive organic extraction laboratory like the money that this industry is earning is beginning to be able to support. 
That's impressive. And you can use heat and pressure too. There's many different products, but mostly they come out essentially yellowy brown and thick viscous waxy what, what, what comes out the extract uh -huh. the product uh -huh. and it's there's many different names for it uh, bho butane hash oil hash oil wax butter shatter kind of there's many different textures and physical and sensory properties mm. but this stuff starts at around 45% THC and can move up to nearly 100% THC. This is what we just used to call hash. Well, hash is usually physically separated trichomes. The trichomes are the little hairy bits on the outside of the plant where all the THC hangs out. Okay. So in the old days, you would basically beat on a marijuana plant oh, and okay. then the sticky trichomes would be collected and pressed into a brick oh, okay. and that's hash oh, okay nowadays people are often extracting these trichomes by mixing the flowers with dry ice and ethanol and coldness causes the little trichomes to shatter off and then you filter that and catch all the trichomes and that's another product so that's where you get you're concentrating it to around 45 percent thc 45 to 60. when you start solvent extracting you can get much higher percentages of thc so this stuff comes highly concentrated and it's consumed either by mixing it with things that have less thc in them and smoking it or more often by touching it to a heated surface and rapidly in inhaling the aerosol that comes off and that's known as dabbing because you start with just a tiny dab of material because it's so potent ah. yeah. so there's been very little research at all on dabbing or the chemistry of dab aerosols I was actually just at a conference and I was sitting at a table with a bunch of fire chiefs and they were talking about inspecting these facilities where they're using volatile solvents to extract cannabis and how these people were coming in with backgrounds in analytical chemistry and then as they got more funding they were borrowing physical properties and processes that the petroleum industry uses for isolating small fractions of different organic petroleum products to extract large quantities of cannabis and create cannabis concentrates. I actually found out for the first time I think why people prefer solvents to carbon dioxide it's a faster turnaround. You can do more batches per day using solvents. And some people say that, you know, you get better extraction of the chemicals that give it some of its sensory properties. Mm -hmm. There's some irony for me. I think of marijuana as being very like anti-establishment and revolutionary and uh, anti-corporate and I mean, just the culture. And yet now we're seeing how there's an eventual like capitalization on the market and then using petroleum products which is i guess using the solvents or petroleum yeah, products yeah. and depending how carefully it's purged to the solvent there can still be remnants of the solvent that you're going to be inhaling yeah absolutely let's be honest one of the reasons that state county and city governments are willing to take on a brand new purview something that was always illegal before is because it is the agricultural product that brings the highest profits. Now, I mean, ag is never easy. As with growing anything, there's infinite possibilities for failure and heartbreak and insect infestation and fungus and hail and disaster, but cannabis plants are pretty tough. Mm -hmm. You earn a lot more than you do for almonds mm. and way more than you do for strawberries or lettuce and once it's dried it's not perishable either so as an agricultural product it really really pays mm. the tobacco industry 
is just pernicious. The cannabis industry in the United States is not yet that large or powerful, but it may develop into that. And people are very concerned about the loss of local control, getting all bought out by large corporations mm. that you know are accountable to nobody because they're multinational. Right. It but seems like we're headed that way. This yeah. is what capitalism does. We can you know, mitigate against that. And frankly, the federal government's insane stubbornness in not allowing banks to take money from uh -huh. cannabis industries definitely puts a big old crimp in large corporations participating in the market. It's a mixed blessing. I was going to go back to the air pollution. Yeah. You talked previously about particulate matter concentrations, but I haven't heard you talk about any other noxious gases. Absolutely. When you burn something, the chemicals in the smoke come in all different sizes, and the smaller chemicals are the volatiles and the gases. And we've measured the um, aldehydes and ketones, both of which are produced in just about as much concentration by smoking marijuana as by smoking tobacco. We don't know what's in the aerosols created by dabbing and vaping cannabis. We do need to sit back and remember that you can also eat cannabis, and there are other methods for administering it. Right, but those methods aren't as potent or fun. They're not as fast, and they're not as predictable. Inhaling a cannabis aerosol, it goes straight to your lungs, and the blood from your lungs immediately hits your peripheral circulation and goes up to your brain. And that means that you start noticing the psychoactive and other effects of cannabis near instantaneously. If you just ate raw cannabis flowers, you would not necessarily get high at all because mm. that hasn't been heat activated. Mm. So when somebody prepares an edible, they have to take the raw cannabis, heat it, and then include it somehow in a edible or drinkable preparation. Mm -hmm. It is absorbed through the walls of your gut and it passes through your liver and undergoes mm. complex metabolic processing mm -hmm. before it hits your bloodstream. And that completely changes the kinetics of when it hits you and how long it stays with you. So or even how much of it? Yes, you absorb less of it when you eat it. However, a lot of it gets metabolized to an equally psychoactive metabolite. Mm. You don't lose a lot by eating it, but you completely change how you feel it. Mm -hmm. Instead of peaking within minutes, you hit your peak blood concentrations anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours afterwards depends on what's in your gut. Mm -hmm. And what food. did they put it in? Yes, what did they put it in and how well did they mix it into the preparation? Mm -hmm. And then instead of starting to go away within an hour or so, you can be feeling effects, you know, up to six to eight hours. Mm. It seems like it would be good for, like, if you have chronic pain. I would think that would be superb for if you had chronic pain or yeah. really trying to manage a medical condition. Mm -hmm. Or you want to go to sleep. Oh, yes, exactly. So in fact, the whole reason that we have this crazy idea that on-site consumption is a thing that should be allowed in California is an argument by our cannabis lobbyists where they're saying we have people who are patients who need cannabis as a medicine and they live in homes, apartments, buildings, low-income housing where smoking isn't permitted or where vaporizing and e-cigs aren't permitted. Where can they use their medicine? And it just sort of dances around the idea that you don't have to smoke it. 
as, a, as an argument for state regulation, I feel like it was using a very tiny group of people to expose a large group of people to a lot of heinous air pollution. I'm right. not pleased about it at right. all. Right. We're getting all geared up for the Hippie Hill 420 Festival in Golden Gate Park. Yeah, tell me about oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to be going and measuring particle concentrations both inside and outside the event. And in our previous years, we've seen really crazy levels of air pollution because normally when you're a crowd of people who are smoking, they aren't all smoking simultaneously. Whereas the 420 <laughs> Festival, you go, you stand around, you have like your own public fair in a, in a grassy meadow experience, and then at 420... 420 p.m. 420 p.m., almost every everybody in the crowd lights up and inhales and the air and pollution, then exhales <laughs> yes and the air pollution is just astounding again far higher for that period of time than anything except right next door to paradise's wildfire far higher than you see during when we're having our horrible air pollution days where the sun looks like a maraschino cherry and your lungs feel crappy and everyone's running around worried go to that 420 festival, you're volunteering for worse than that. Even worse than Mexico City and Delhi and Beijing. and Exactly. That's impressive. Yeah, it is impressive because we usually have, again, excellent air quality, especially in Golden Gate Park. Right. It's not near major freeways. It's right. getting all that beautiful ocean breeze. To be said, that probably doesn't linger, huh? It doesn't linger, no. Mm -hmm. But if you're there, you're getting a high exposure. If you're working that event... This is so interesting and it's great that you're doing this research right at the beginning of when we've embarked on this era where using cannabis is legal. It's not just me. I have to give huge thanks and respect to the Tobacco-Related Disease Research Program of California. You've spoken primarily about the secondhand smoke effects. Do you have anything to say about the effects on the smoker? And do you have anything to say about third-hand smoke exposure? I'll start with the effects on the active cannabis smoker. The research that led to us identifying a connection between smoking and cancer in the first place, starting as early as the 1890s, gathering steam in the 1930s and 40s, getting squashed during World War II, and finally emerging into American scientific and you know, Western European scientific consciousness in the early 50s. Those studies looked at people who smoked a pack a day and didn't have significant other air pollution exposures. And a lot of the people who smoke cannabis also smoke tobacco. Mm -hmm. So I think that in California, there's the potential to do epidemiological research on people who've only smoked cannabis and haven't had other hideous air pollution exposures. But that's a small subset of the population. Now, we've had people smoking cannabis in the United States for all of their lives. The number well, who since they were maybe nine. Yes. <laughs> the number of people who've not also smoked tobacco and who can also remember how much they smoked. Because again, remember, a cigarette pack is a very memorable, measurable unit. Your joint you roll could vary a lot. Right. It's a hell of a lot harder to gather the data and analyze it and get the result. And then make a dose response association. Exactly. Yeah. It's also borne out with recent studies showing that you have nearly 80% of the risk of heart attack when you smoke a single cigarette a day is when you smoke a pack or 10 or more per day. It doesn't take much to increase your risk of heart disease. One third of people who die of active smoking of tobacco die of heart disease, stroke, or heart attack. For secondhand smoke, it's 80% of the people who have disease related to secondhand smoke exposure, it's cardiovascular. If it's bad for the secondhand smoker, then it's uh, we can confidently say that it's bad for the smoker. 
Yes, we uh-huh. can. You know, it's truly magical thinking to assume that you don't have a health risk from smoking cannabis. And what about third-hand exposure? Second-hand smoke is the smoke that goes into the air that you breathe when you're adjacent to someone who's actively using tobacco. Yeah, when you're at the party where everybody's smoking, then you're getting exposed. <laughs> exactly. So third-hand exposure is the stuff that sticks to the walls, the carpets, the hair, the body, and stays long after you extinguish or turn off your vaporizer and stop actively using. It's Mm -hmm. the stuff that, in some cases, is a near-permanent feature of your indoor environment. So it's like when you go to the hotel room and they tell you that it was a non-smoking room, but you know it was a smoking room. Yes, Uh exactly. With tobacco, we found this truly horrifying chemical reaction that occurs in rooms where people have been smoking. So the nicotine that's in secondhand smoke doesn't ever leave the room. Mm. because air exchange rates are low and the nicotine sticks to walls and surfaces before it can be removed by ventilation. And once it's sitting there, it can react with normal reactive chemicals in the air, like ozone or like nitrous acid from your gas stove, and it forms a tobacco-specific carcinogen called NNK. NNK causes lung cancer. And so when you smoke indoors, you basically liberally coat yourself and your entire indoor environment with nicotine that lingers for months and years and slowly, a small bit of it at a time, reacts to form a lung carcinogen. We've analyzed data from experiments that the tobacco industry did where they smoked really heavily and intensively in a research room for 110 days and then ventilated it night and day at really high rates with really clean air. And they found that the concentration of this carcinogen NN K in the room actually increased as time passed. Oh, wow. Yeah. What about like the parents who say they only smoke outside and then they come in and it's stuck to their clothes and stuff? It's most certainly stuck to their clothes. One of the first, the idea that third-hand smoke might be a thing that might really exist, might matter, came from San Diego State University. And they were trying to promote cessation among smokers who were parents. They were collecting urine samples from the children who lived with parents who smoked. There are plenty of smokers nowadays who never smoke in their own homes or cars that only smoke out of doors. And so the researchers at San Diego State University had this subset of their smoking cessation project population that swore on a stack of Bibles, up and down, that they never smoked in the room, never in the house, never in the car with their children, and yet their children still had really elevated levels of the metabolites of nicotine, of cotinine, in their urine. That's impressive. They started doing wipe samples in the houses and wipe samples on the hands and wipe samples on the kids, and they find high concentrations of nicotine in the homes of people who only smoke outdoors. They even found the same effect in people who only chewed tobacco. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow, that's very interesting. Nicotine happens to really be good at lingering in indoor environments. We don't yet know what cannabis is like and whether there's any of these crazy damaging chemical reactions that are going to build up a brand new chemical that's toxic. Yeah, so we don't know what's going to happen with that smoke that's lingering, and we probably have no idea if there's any impact on children. Exactly. We just don't know yet. Very interesting work. I'm very curious to see what knowledge comes out of this. There's a lot of observable harms that have come with our previous policies around marijuana. One Um, of them being to incarcerate. 
too many people just for that. Exactly. So mm -hmm. the classification of cannabis as a Schedule One drug, that is to say a drug that has absolutely no beneficial properties or uses and is only damaging, is not borne out by the existing scientific evidence. And I would go farther to say that while actively using cannabis can be bad for your health, and it can put you into some dangerous states of mind, but it doesn't seem to be associated with the negative effects that addiction to opiates are, for example, or the stimulants like meth. Alcohol and cannabis are probably going to end up in a similar zone in our society right now where we have some negative health effects from smoking it or from getting into car accidents while you're high or from exacerbating existing psychiatric distress mm -hmm. by being not in your right mind. Mm -hmm. I'd say in a perfect and ideal world, none of us would be using drugs to get ourselves happy or to reduce our anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the money from the taxes. And there's the agribusiness aspect of it. Yeah. It is also interesting to think of if everybody's going to like massively turn over to cannabis, then we're going to be importing all our food from somewhere else. I don't think it's <laughs> going to get that bad. I really don't. There's a lot of... Well, honestly, the way good regulation with a drug that is psychoactive works is that they have a program called Track and Trace where the paperwork will kill you. You'd much <laughs> rather be growing wheat where you don't have to tag and pack and track and video your handling of every single bit of it yeah. from harvest to sale. Uh -huh. Wheat versus weed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, you know. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Suzanne, Dr. Schick. <laughs> I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I'll just reiterate when people are using their lungs as a drug delivery device for cannabis, there is a very real threat to their health and to the health of people who are breathing what they put into the air around them. It's something that we do not want happening around people who are either young and still developing their bodies or who are medically vulnerable. The smoke-free policies we've developed to protect population from the health effects of tobacco smoking should be applied to cannabis, in my opinion. Absolutely. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Jaisri. That was Dr. Schick from the University of California, San Francisco at San Francisco General Hospital. I'm Dr. Jaisri Chander, creator of Naging Now, a podcast about prioritizing well-being on the web at nagingnow.org. Naging Now is independent and entirely listener-supported. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give it a thumbs up, share it with your friends, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and donate generously. Your support is essential to keep Naging Now alive. Naging Now is written, recorded, edited, produced, and distributed by Dr. Jaisri Chander. Web by Takahiro Naguchi, Tabla and Manjira played by Jaisi, compositions from Pandit Swapan Chaudhary, bass guitar by Pedro Ordonez, drum set by Jesse Garcia, multi-instrumentalist Dave Rosenfeld, concluding poem by Jaisi. You can find us on the web at nagingnow.org, N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W.org.